Back to the show. Good morning. Welcome back to Real Presence Live, Duluth edition. We're coming to you from the Stella Maris Academy, St. James Campus. And my name is Father Richard Kunst, and my co-host is Cindy Jennings. And so, so far, so good. I love that straight talk segment. That was probably my all-time favorite good. straight talk segment. I know. It, it kind of stumped you a little, too. It, that yeah, was nice I mean, to see. Yeah, I mean, I, I like. I don't, no, I don't like. I don't like being stumped. But those were questions that were really good. And again, if Father Ryan was here, he would have been on that computer trying to correct me, and which was good, which would be fine, which was fine. So, uh, but I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad that you didn't do that, Cindy. So uh, I didn't really get to say before the break. Uh, we were on. A, we were at a hard break, so I really couldn't talk. But uh, I said that our our guest is John DeSanto, a good friend of mine, and and that's true. So I didn't want to clarify that. I've known John for many, many years, a parishioner of mine from a long time ago. Uh, uh, but John is a, has a very um, a very interesting history, and he's a, um, a, a judge, a retired judge and district attorney, right? Right. And, and, uh, um, uh, and so in Duluth, in Duluth, I wouldn't say, I would say that, John, you're semi-celebrity uh, in Duluth because of your history, which we're going to talk about today. So, John, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's always easy to be up. A uh, big fish in a small sea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, um, so, John, just tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. I, um, I'm a lifelong Duluthian and lifelong Catholic uh, Christian. And uh, I grew up in the... I was born in 1946. Uh, well, you didn't have to tell us your age. I, but... I know. But, uh, <laughs> and that. Uh, that gets to my retired status. or my, As a judge, I'm a senior status. Uh, I was born... 13 minutes after my twin brother, Will. Okay. <laughs> so I have a twin brother, had wonderful Catholic parents, uh, Hazel and Bill DeSanto. I grew up in St. Michael's Parish and uh, went to St. Michael's School for okay. first through eighth grade in the, in the 50s. Then I went to Cathedral High School and graduated in 1964. In fact, we were the first, uh, I was part of the first graduating class from the new school. Yeah, that wasn't Catholic. Hill. That wasn't Catholic necessarily. Yeah. So that was 1964? No, no, no. no. Oh, the new the, building. The new building. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, okay, the, right. it was the first year of the 63-64. The diocese still yeah, yeah. owned the, yeah, okay. the school, and and, uh, and I was blessed to be part of that. And uh, then I went uh, uh, on to UMD, graduated in 1968, was drafted into the service in 68, and was Two years in the service, by the grace of God, I, I didn't have to go to Vietnam. Okay, well. I went to Germany for one of the two years, came back, went to law school at the University of Minnesota uh, from 1970 to 73, and then I started on my prosecutor journey in 1973, right out of law school, and I was a 35-year career prosecutor, as I say. Oh. Uh, tried, tried a lot of cases, over 250 cases to jury, about 28 murder cases. Really? Uh, including the Glensheen murder cases, which we'll talk about. Um, I'm married to a wonderful wife of um, Lana for 40 years. Yeah, I always so, refer to her as your much better half. My, she is my much better <laughs> half. <laughs> and uh, I'm blessed with uh, three adult children now, Amy, who's 38, Abby, who's 36, and Adam, who's 35. And uh, now four grandchildren, and that's oh. the best. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I hear. I'll never know that, of course, but yeah. that's what I hear a lot. Right. Yeah, right. yeah. So it's like, um, uh, yeah. I'm glad you gave a little bit more of history. We got a little bit more time with you than a, than sure. a regular uh, guest, at least from right. my experience. And so, and um, part of that, or the big part of this, because of your role in a hugely significant historical event that happened in Duluth, Minnesota. Indeed. And and. Um, Maybe you can just start off from the top in regards sure. to, you know, maybe we'll put it this way. 
somebody that's not familiar with the Glen Sheen murder and so on and so forth, could you explain it from the 35,000 feet level to sure. a listener who's unfamiliar with what we're sure talking about? Sure, I can. Let me just add, um, because you, you mentioned it at the top, um, uh, I actually quote, retired from the St. Louis County Attorney's Office prosecutor in the early 2008. So I had 35 years there. And then, and I always give the God the glory in this, yeah. I never anticipated at age 61 being appointed a, a judge. judge. Yeah. I was appointed a judge at age 61 by Governor Pawlenty and have been a trial court uh, judge now for since 2009 to the present where I Serve now as a fill-in judge at senior judge. Okay. So 2009 to the present, and I guess I have no retirement date. Anymore. Have you enjoyed being a judge more than you being know, a prosecuting attorney? I've been asked that often, and uh, I actually uh, enjoyed, and that's not the right word, but I actually really uh, li- liked uh, the, the, the being the prosecutor, controlling my destiny in yeah, the courtroom. Yeah. Uh, but the decision-making that a judge has in, in an impartial way over the cases uh, has been very important and significant oh, for absolutely. me, too. So, but uh, do you want me to start with the background then on the... You just do, do, the, do the whole thing from, from like I said, 35,000 feet. Somebody who's never been to Duluth, somebody who's never heard of the Congdon Mansion murder. Sure. Because uh, in Duluth, it's like, it's folklore. For sure. And so, so maybe... 35,000 feet explanation of what it, what it is. Sure. Well, in uh, June of 1977, the last surviving child of Chester and Clara Congdon, who built Glensheen Mansion in the first decade of the 20th century, uh, they're, they're, they had seven children. The last surviving child was Elizabeth Congdon. And we're talking about with, a very wealthy family, very influential in Duluth. Very wealthy, influential, and uh, philanthropic. Mm-hmm. Uh, very, uh, I got to know this family through death of Elizabeth, of course. It uh, was murdered in the mansion at age 83. The same night that she was murdered, her night nurse, who was tending to her that night, and she had round-the-clock nurses since 1965, Velma Piedla, was also murdered. And so we had a double murder. In the Glensheen Mansion, in June, specifically on June 27th, 1977, Glensheen Mansion, for those who have not been there, is located on the north shore of Lake Superior on what we call London Road, 3300 London Road in Duluth. Uh, very well recognized now since the murders, a uh, uh, place to visit, uh, and tourist attraction, if you will. Because the, after the murders and the last surviving child dying, the the school the the, the mansion went to the UM, went to UMD by by will, and uh, but these two beautiful wonderful women, Elizabeth at age eighty three and her night nurse Velma Piedla at age sixty six, were murdered in there, basically, with the motive being to speed up an inheritance by an adopted daughter, Elizabeth, Marjorie Congdon. Yeah. And her husband, uh, then at the time, she was married several times, um, but uh, Roger Caldwell committing the murders. Right. It's it's funny, you know, I mean, because even, so I'm like you, I'm a Duluth native all my life. And and 1970, I'm a little bit younger than you, John. Yeah, but, but, uh, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> but but uh, uh, I remember, so in 77, June of 77, I would have been seven or eight years old. Wow. But I remember it. I remember specifically Dennis Anderson's newscast. And the image of like the the hearse going up to the Glensheen Mansion, and so I remember as a young kid, 
how much that shook Duluth because of the Congdens being such a huge presence. That's right. Of Duluth, and That's then right. Elizabeth being the last one, and then it's a murder, and then it's murder and money. You know, it's like right. it's, 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 it's and even the, the the mansion has had movies. Haven't haven't movies been filmed in that? One in particular, um, which Patty Duke, which it? right, which uh, which leads to one of the ironies of the story, which we put into a book, uh, Will to Murder. Uh, published in 2003. Um, one in particular was Universal Studios, uh, where Elizabeth, because she had, by irony, um, a, a fascination with murder mysteries, allowed Universal really? Studios to actually use the mansion for a movie called uh, You'll Like My Mother, which was a thriller, yeah. and which she viewed in its premiere at the North Shore Theater downtown. Uh, and this was following a stroke where she couldn't speak much anymore yeah. after 1965. She kept saying, oh, my God, oh, my goodness, oh, my goodness, really? oh, my goodness, what's going on here? And I didn't think she, think, she thought it was going to be quite the yeah. uh, the, the thriller yeah, <laughs> that, it, that it was. But uh, there was that, that uh, case, that movie, filmed there yes, yeah. at her at her okay yeah that's incredible yeah i i've actually taken a tour so i'm from kansas originally but moved up here and that was the first thing i did was take a tour of the mansion and um you know going through they just never talked about the murder so it's very nice to hear a little bit of information on that and um just kind of get familiar yeah. with sure the- yeah they, they they stayed away from that whole thing for years i don't think yeah. they shy away from it as much anymore but i i remember because of um, the duluth native i remember right. you were my person i was at st ben's at right. time, so this is quite a while ago now right. but i remember it, it was probably two or three years at after i'd gotten to st ben's where i realized you mean john DeSanto was the he was the guy in the in the, in the congdon man i couldn't believe it. it's like i know who this guy is and he was a prosecuting attorney so yeah. so say a little bit about your role here sure well um, at let that, like I said, uh, I started in the county attorney's office as a prosecutor. I always wanted to try criminal cases, having gone through law school. That's where my focus was. I got a job in my hometown. Oh, what a blessing that was! Uh, and um, then followed a 35-year career. But by uh, 1977, I started in 73. I didn't have a lot of experience, right. uh, but I tried five murder cases then. And by that time already, because many of the lawyers that were prosecuting ahead of me had left for private, what they call private practice, what we call private practice, um, I was the most experienced lawyer. And Keith Brownell was the county attorney. He said, do you want to try this case? And I had no idea when I said yes what it yeah, meant. Yeah. I mean, truly. The, uh, the Glen Sheen murder case is probably the highest profile homicide case in Minnesota criminal court history. History, yeah. History, right? Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, it's something that that even uh, uh, one of my adversaries at in Marjorie's trial, or the, or the adversary, primary defense lawyer, Ron Meshbesher, said at a 25-year anniversary of the murders, it's a, and it is indeed, a classic circumstantial evidence murder case with all the elements of high drama of which movies are made. Now, we've never had our book made into a movie yet, but someday maybe. Uh, And he went on to say that those classic uh, uh, drama of which which movies are made was the story of a very wealthy woman, Elizabeth Congdon, who was murdered along with her nurse, Thelma Piedla, in uh, a fabulous mansion on the shores of Lake Superior, done to accelerate a multi-million dollar inheritance 
for an adopted daughter. I mean, it's... That's Hollywood. It's classic, yeah. Uh, and all they had was circumstantial evidence. It was a circumstantial evidence case, which wow. I'd like to elaborate on when we have time. Yeah, yeah we'll do that after, after the break. But um, so, I mean, just to get back a little bit to your... You must be fairly well-known in the city. of Everybody knows John DeSanto. Well, I've lived here for now 73 years. Right. So, like I said, it, uh, I'm, I'm, it's easy like to, to be a big fish in a small sea. It's a relatively small place. But it was... Uh, I. I do know a lot of but people. people don't, do people still identify you as the guy at the Congdon Mansion? Indeed. It, I, uh, I'm, I'm amazed at that. They, you know, I look much different than I did on the day of the murders when I was 30 years yeah. old. Uh, and they say, aren't you the yeah, that crazy? guy? Yeah, yeah, I mean, you were really big in the news back then when that was all going on. Indeed. Indeed. Yeah. Yeah, well, um, uh, we're talking to Don, John DeSanto, who's the prosecuting attorney of the Congdon Mansion murders in Duluth, Minnesota. And we're going to take a short break, and then we're going to get back right to this fascinating story uh, when we return. Stay with us. There's more Real Presence Live to come on the Real Presence Radio Network. Seven years ago, my wife and I and four of our kids, um, one, well, five of our kids, one was still inside uh, Mama at the time, we felt something was missing in our, in our faith life, in our, in our church where we were, and we went through a period of kind of being in the wilderness. Over that period of searching, God led us to, uh, to St. Mary's. And we began a journey of conversion, uh, went through RCIA here at the Cathedral Parish, and uh, there was no turning back once, once we went down that road. And, and I, I tell lots of people that what, if you are a devout Christian and you begin this process with an open mind to learn what the Catholic Church has to say about herself, uh, it will be hard to resist her. And, uh, and we found that to be the case, and we have been thrilled and exuberant Catholics ever since. Hello, this is Mike Kidrowski, Director of Advancement for Real Presence Radio, with a creative gift planning tip. Do you want to make sure Real Presence Radio continues to receive your support in perpetuity? This can now be accomplished by establishing an individual endowment account in your name with a minimum gift of $10,000. A distribution will be made annually in your name to assure future generations will continue to hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ through the mission of Real Presence Radio. To learn more about establishing an individual endowment for Real Presence Radio, a gift which will last in perpetuity, Please call me, Mike Kidrowski, at 701-290-4503. State tax credits may apply in some states. Let's get started. You're listening to Real Presence Live. Now, back to more inspirational and uplifting stories and a look at the extraordinary things happening in our local area. Heard right here on the RPR Network. Good morning. Welcome back to Real Presence Live. I'm Father Richard Kunst along with Cindy Jennings, my co-host, and we are at St. James 
uh, Catholic Church here in the Diocese of Duluth in Duluth, Minnesota. And we've been talking to John DeSanto, the prosecuting attorney for the Congdon Mansion murders, which is, as you've been listening, is kind of folklore around here and folklore for the whole state of Minnesota. And, and uh, you know, and during the break, uh, John, we were talking a little bit about my first hearing you. So the first time I heard you, even though you were my parishioner at St. Ben's, I didn't really hear, hear you give a presentation at that time. But when I right. moved over to St. John's, you came in and talked to the Knights of Columbus for maybe an hour. And uh, right. and uh, that was the first time I heard your presentation, and you blew me away. I was I was, I was... I was on the edge of my seat during your entire presentation. And so then, of course, you know, you wrote a book, and we'll talk about that a little bit, Will to Murder. Sure. I mean, you co- co-authored it. and then Co-authored And so, it. you know, I got the book, and I don't know how many, it's a good size book, 400 pages. And, mm-hmm. and so I'm an absolute readaholic. I've, I mean, I've truly read thousands of books in my wow. life. And I will put this in the top 25 books I've ever read. Well, that's very and, kind and of I, you. No, I, I'm you dead know? serious. Will to Murder get the book <laughs> I, i'm telling you right it, it's not a catholic book it's 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 a true book it's a yeah it's, it's like it's a, a true story yeah, it's, it's a true story but like john is saying it's like this it's, it's this classic hollywood script and the way you guys write this book is just like you i the whole time i'm reading i'm hearing you talk it tell it you know and so it's like that's great it's, it will to murder by john DeSanto and gary waller who's now passed on hasn't gary yes he has on? he died three years ago right okay and so um uh uh and with Gail, I don't know, Gail. Gail Feitinger. Okay, all right. Right. Yeah, but it's a phenomenal book, Will to Murder. I'm sure they're still available. People just Right. Google In fact, it let me give you a little background to that, that, that John DeSanto and Gary Waller with Gail Feitinger. Um, Gary, of course, was the lead investigator mm-hmm. before his death and, and ultimate retirement. Um, he was the St. Louis County Sheriff then after being the head investigator of this uh, double homicide case at Glensheen. And uh, Gary and I had gone through these two long trials together. And indeed, these were, the, at the time, the two longest trials in Minnesota criminal court history. Wow. Rogers Caldwell trial moved to Brainerd. For thir- yeah, it was a 13-week trial. And, uh, and then Marjorie's followed a year later in Hastings, Minnesota, 16-week trial. Well, we, we knew, you know, he knew everything law enforcement-wise. I knew everything courtroom-wise. And we, we said, we got to write a book on this mm-hmm. because there's a lot of the story that was never told in right. the media or never got into evidence right. at trial. Right. So as the foreword in the book says, it says, um, we knew Gail Feitinger, who was a courts reporter for the Duluth News Tribune at the time, and we didn't have experience writing so basically what she did with us giving her the information from our diaries and, and police reports and my, my experience in the courtrooms the two long trials um, gave her the information which she put into the right and I'll give her a major credit yeah, for the right yeah. of, the, of our story right right but indeed Here's, we uh, take pride in the fact that it is all true yep. all accurate and it's complete as, as, as we could make we, it. We've got about four minutes before the next break. We sure. can continue this, but I want sure. you to start. I want you to get a little bit into the weeds of some of these maybe sure. interesting stories that the that the most people wouldn't know about. Sure. Well, um, let's start with the fact that it was a, a, a circumstantial evidence case, and what that means in the layman's parlance is that there was no eyewitness who could place Roger Caldwell at. Glensheen Mansion committing those murders that night. So what does that? The circumstances, the evidence collected, that's the circumstantial evidence. And here's some of the things that were collected at the time from the murder scene. 
and and then ultimately in, during the investigation that were collected, which makes this truly uh, the uh, quinte- uh, quintessential circumstantial evidence case. We had um, hair of Roger Caldwell's left at, during the murders at the scene. Now this was long before DNA was available to us. Um, we'll talk. We can talk about DNA a little later because it became available to us before as the book is being written. But um, we had, what, then we had three hairs which we matched through the uh, Bureau of Criminal Apprehension Laboratory microscopically as looking similar or like, mirror, mirrored the actual hair of Roger Cullo, of which we took samples after his arrest. So we had his hair at the scene. We had his blood at the scene. Again, long before DNA evidence almost it conclusively gives you a person's blood. This is 99.9% certain. Again, it was blood that was analyzed from his known blood with blood at the scene um, that was by, the, and, and that time in 77 and through the time of the trials, 78 and 79, um, was what was was analyzed by blood type, ABO, he was O blood, and enzyme groups. It compared favorably with his, but it wasn't 99.9% certain, which led to defense uh, cross-examination about that. Well, if that's the case, and it's only 15 uh, per, so, uh, 20% of, of, the, of the population of the United States all these people qualify as well. Yeah, but all of these people didn't get what becomes the, the um, part of the, circ- the really the coup de grace, the circumstantial evidence, the will to murder. Three days before the murder, Marjorie wrote a document which purports to be a will which gave Roger Caldwell, her husband in Colorado, um, $2.5 of her $8 million inheritance upon the death of her mother which he put into a safety deposit box, protecting it in his interest in, and, and motive for committing the murders. Wasn't there a gold coin involved in this, too? Yeah, that, which <laughs> remains a mystery to this yeah, day, yeah, Father. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I want you there's, to tell me. There's still <laughs> Elizabeth Condon, the intended victim to speed up inheritance, last surviving child of Chester and Clara Condon, who built the mansion, uh, uh, gives... Uh, uh, Elizabeth Condon, uh, where, 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 what was the question? I the gold coin. Gold coin. She's, she's smothered in her bed on the second floor of the mansion. Well, from that bedroom, a gold coin is taken from her memorabilia case, mailed from Duluth, Minnesota, back to Roger Caldwell, back to himself, at the Holland House Hotel in Golden, Colorado, where they were living. And... We wonder why, but to, uh, to this day, it was part of the circumstantial evidence which linked him to the scene. Yeah, this and, is, this and is and fascinating. There was much more. Yeah, this is fascinating. So we're gonna we're gonna continue sure. this conversation with uh, uh, John DeSanto right after this break. Okay. Have you ever wondered if your family's past struggles have affected you personally? I'm Father Chris Alar. You and your ancestors are all part of the body of Christ, so you should desire healing for them for the consequence of their past sins. Evidence suggests that these consequences can even be passed down through generations. Well, God does not hold you personally responsible for the sins of your ancestors. 
he does allow the effect of their deeds to reverberate from one generation to the next. The sins or sanctity of your family members may impact you. So learn how to break free from any sinful bonds in your life. There is hope. Please visit suicideandhope.com so I can personally pray for anyone you've lost. And to get our book, After Suicide, There's Hope for Them and You, which helps with any kind of suffering or loss, not just suicide. I promise it will help. This is Father Bo Brown from the Diocese of Duluth. A lot of times, us as, as Catholics, we we struggle with the Holy Spirit because the, the Father is so approachable. He has a name that's very... Uh, that we all know, right, that we can relate to, and the Son as well. And when we get the Holy Spirit, oftentimes He can take this, this kind of back seat in our relationship with God. And we see early on in the, in the book of Acts and uh, in the disciples in the early life of the church, we see how they live with the Holy Spirit and they express to us what it's like to live with Him and how He both sanctifies what they do and their ministry and gives them special gifts and also how He sanctifies their own lives. And they talk about how the Spirit brings uh, certain effects in their life, like joy and peace, patience, kindness, generosity, self-control. So I think it's good for us to think about today. What's our relationship with the Holy Spirit like? Is He a real person in our lives? We have the same kind of relationship with Him that we have with the Father and the Son. You're listening to Real Presence Live. Now, back to more inspirational and uplifting stories and a look at the extraordinary things happening in our local area. Heard right here on the RPR Network. Welcome back to Real Presence Live. My name is Father Richard Kunst. I'm here with Cindy Jennings. We're coming to you from the Diocese of Duluth, and we have got uh, a heck of a good uh, guest here this morning in John DeSanto, who is the prosecuting attorney for the Congdon Mansion Murders. And uh, as you can tell, if you've been uh, listening already, it's kind of exciting. And John's just getting into the weeds a little bit about circumstantial evidence that Cindy had asked him about a little bit ago. So, John, I mean, we kind of cut you off in the break. Sure. We talked a little bit about the gold coin. I don't know if there's anything else you wanted to add in that in that regard. Well, indeed. Um, the other circumstantial evidence included the fact that we find Marjorie, uh, who is going to gain the $8 million inheritance at, uh, upon the death of her mother, who's now given, by virtue of this document, uh, $2.5 million of, her, of that inheritance to him, uh, irrevocably, as she writes into this document, the will to murder. Um, uh, we also have uh, her, Marjorie and Roger, found with stolen jewelry from Elizabeth Congdon's bedroom. You know, that's circumstantial that, that the, he was there and committed because we knew where Marjorie was the weekend of the murders. She was with a real estate agent looking at homes that in 1977 dollars were well over a million dollars. She had no money. She'd gone through uh, money like it was water uh, in the in the years before the murders and, and needed to, her inheritance to, to get what she wanted, which was a, a ranch in in. Uh, a horse breeding business that she wanted to start with Roger in Golden, Colorado, but that so we have her with all the and, and Roger with the stolen jewelry, a wicker case taken from Elizabeth's bedroom closet, in in possession of that, we have Roger in the days following the murders observed by uh, my co-writer and good friend now deceased, my late friend Gary Waller seen with a swollen right hand. And a cut on one of on his on his left hand, 
which we believe was during his uh, bludgeoning, quite frankly, of uh, Velma Pietela, the night nurse trying to protect her employer and beloved Elizabeth Congdon uh, on the staircase. Uh, she was bludgeoned, by the way, with a, a brass candle holder, which caused... Traditional the, Hollywood. <laughs> well, it's caused the media to say things like, this is a case that jumps right out of the board game Clue. Yeah. You know? Uh, so they were, yeah, they were fascinated by yeah. the media. took. Uh, but uh, w- with that said... When I talk about fascination and intrigue, which it is a story that is fascinating, I always come back to the point that it's tragic, so tragic. We lost the life of two women who should have never died on June 27, 1977. 83-year-old Elizabeth Congdon and and 66-year-old Velma Piedla. I always want to reemphasize that. So we have Roger with injuries believed during, uh, uh, obtained during the... Uh, the bludgeoning of Velma on the staircase before he gets to the second floor bedroom and smothers Elizabeth now that deed is done to obtain the inheritance. Uh, and we also have him with other evidence uh, going away from the murder scene to the Minneapolis airport, purchasing a suede bag at a gift shop on the airport. And those were the days when you could go through the airport and we couldn't put him on a plane because you could be Joe Schmo from Kokomo. Not anymore. You know, you have right, to have course. ID and, and yeah. everything else since 911. But those days, he's in the gift shop at the before he boards the plane, heading back, which we never caught him on the plane at hours and hours, hundreds of hours of investigation to try to put him on a plane getting back to Colorado. But he has a uh, something that he's purchased at the airport, still in his possession. We've got... Um, all, and then, of course, the, the, the coup de grace was the, the murder contract itself, which was Marjorie's giving Roger this by way of, she writes it like a will. That's why we call it will to murder. My twin brother, Will, claims that he gets should get some credits because it's his name in the yeah. title of, of the book. <laughs> but uh, it's, that's not the reason for it. Um, but the will, the will to murder, the murder contract itself is the... Uh, is is very um, significant is the probably the most significant piece of circumstantial evidence linking uh, and giving him motive for the crime. But I thought you might be interested too, Father. I know that when when, we, when we've talked about the case, um, um, you were quite fascinated when I presented uh, years ago at, at uh, St. John's Church about the case, this marmalade incident. Yeah, I was just going to ask. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, maybe I jumped ahead too. No, no, that's all right. No, you're good. You're good. It's, but now this is a piece. This is what we tried to do is tell the whole story in the book. But this piece of evidence never got into evidence at trial because we. And you'll hear, you'll understand why in a few moments as I tell you about the marmalade incident. So how? So as the two uh, deceased women are found at Glensheen, the the police are looking right away who who could have or would this be a random burglary it was made to look like that quite frankly um or was this a, a motivated uh and, and and of course the staff uh, round the clock nursing staff for elizabeth since her stroke in 1965 and and her personal secretary and a wonderful woman who became a very important witness at trial her um vera dunbar told us they said, we have no doubt in our mind that 
the, um, the, the person behind this was her adopted daughter, Elizabeth, or excuse me, Marjorie um, Congdon. And now Caldwell, she just had divorced her husband of 20 years in 1970. She was Marjorie Leroy, and then she divorced, he divorced her because of her excessive spending. And uh, um, they just couldn't keep up, even though she was had wealth. Um, and uh, then when she moved to Colorado, marries Roger Caldwell. They we we believe, and here's here's one of the reasons we think that she might is involved. Not and uh, and just because just three years earlier, we believe Marjorie tried to kill her mother the fir- the first time that we're aware of to speed up her inheritance as she was successful through Roger in 1977, and this was part of the information in a very important piece of evidence for us, and that was the nurse's log. The nurse's log logged in, as those of you in the medical profession might know, all of the medication she had from her time of her stroke. She had round-the-clock nursing, three, three, uh, uh, 24 hours a day, three shifts a day, morning nurse, 7, uh, to th- three p- 7 a.m. to 3 p.m., Midday nurse, 3 p.m. to 11 p.m., and then the night nurse. And that's what Velma Piedla became the night of the murders after she had retired, by the way. Because she, she was subbing for She somebody. was subbing for the actual night nurse and, and came to her death that night, oh. which only adds to the, the story, if you will. But it's tragic, so tragic. But th- the, she points, uh, Vera Dunbar does, to an incident that's documented in the nurse's log three years earlier. November of 1974, Marjorie, now divorced from her first husband, living in Marine on the St. Croix, which is down in Washington County, just uh, above St. Paul, um, in a home that she ultimately, and that's a whole other story, we probably don't have time for her, ultimately burned down for the insurance proceeds, but was unsuccessful there, even though she burned it down. Um, she, She visited her mom. And her mom is a diabetic. And she says, I've made some wonderful orange marmalade, and I want my mother, Elizabeth, to have a marmalade sandwich. And Vera Dunbar, her personal secretary, and, and the nurse say, you know, Marjorie, she can't have that. She's a diabetic. This is, and she said, just a little bit. And, and like I've always said as I present in these cases, there was one made one main word that Marjorie never learned the, the, the meaning of, and that's the word no. She insisted, she insisted, she persisted, just a little sandwich. And so she gives her uh, a marmalade sandwich, which she also um, uh, partakes in, but her sandwich, as was noted you know, by the people who saw it at the time, was different from Elizabeth's. Elizabeth's had the crust cut off, and hers did not, uh, of the of the bread that she used for the marmalade sandwich. She had, she, Mar- Elizabeth sa- uh, eats the marmalade sandwich. Marjorie leaves, goes back to the Marine on the Saint Croix home, and Elizabeth goes into a coma. I mean, she's in a dire circumstance. Her physician at the time uh, and wonderful friend, uh, Dr. Elizabeth Bagley, documents for us at trial and otherwise and in the investigation that she literally almost died. And they do a a testing of her what's in her body and they find meprobamate and and this isn't a drug that she's prescribed all she is on prescription drugs and it's a toxic level 
of meprobamate. And so there was the firm belief that the marmalade, the mar- which became the marmalade incident, was Marjorie's first attempt to kill her mother to speed up her inheritance without using someone else, as she did later, three years later, with Roger Caldwell. So but now fast forward. Yeah. yeah fast forward to the court. Oh yeah. So <laughs> so now we're we're in we're in the courtroom and I'm trying to get Judge Lippman, who's the presiding judge at the uh, Roger Caldwell trial, to allow this evidence in. And he said, "Well, was there any testing of the marmalade to see if it had meprobamate in it?" Well, no, Your Honor. Uh, there's um, nobody reported it. This was within the Congdon family. They they had their sus- really good suspicions, but they never really reported it to law enforcement and was never tested and linked. So the judge actually, although I was angry and felt uh, it was wrong at the time, but he actually made the correct decision. We didn't have clear and convincing evidence that linked the meprobamate in Elizabeth Congdon's body that almost killed her with the marmalade because she left with the marmalade and it was never reported to police so then yeah but didn't marjorie make a cake or something oh oh that part (laughs) that part okay in 1979 of course we have the the 16-week trial in hastings of marjorie we've now can we've already convicted roger of, of two counts of murder in the first degree she's now charged with aiding and abetting and conspiracy to commit murder, the woman behind the man, as one of our chapter titles is entitled, who put this all together. She's in trial in Hastings. And she uh, comes to the courtroom one day. She was out on bail during the trial. Yeah, this was, and uh, her attorney, Ron Meshbesher, is there with, with her. And we're, it's, a, it's before the startup of the testimony that day. And she's brought with her a birthday cake. Because it's Ron, her, her attorney's birthday, and she wants everybody to sample. The, the, she's like the jurors who are waiting in the jury room. They don't see any of this. I want the jurors to have a piece. I want Judge. Then we have D- Judge David Bouchard. I want him to have a piece. And Ron, this is for your birthday. You'll have a piece. And she turns to first to Gary Waller, who's standing next to me at the council table, and says, well, Gary, you'll have a piece. And he's just disgusted with her because we've told Ron we don't want her to talk to us during this trial like we're friendly with her. And, and of course, he just turns away in disgust. And she turns to me and she says, well, John, you'll have a piece of the birthday cake, won't you? And Ron's been telling her. Marjorie, this isn't going to happen. The jurors aren't going to have a piece. You'll have a piece, won't you, John? And she refers to me as John, not Mr. DeSanto, not Mr. Prosecutor, not. And you'll have a piece. And I say, absolutely, not. you got to be kidding. And her immediate response, her immediate response was, "Don't worry, there's no marmalade in it." Oh, I knew it. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> If that isn't an admission against interest, of course, we tried to use that, as I've told you, Father, previously. We tried to use that as an admission against interest to get that marmalade incident into Marjorie's trail, and that was excluded also. But but it makes for a a, a wonderful story. Hollywood doesn't need to add details. They're all there. That's so crazy. That's the truth. That is the truth, wow. but that's that's the some of the, the circumstantial evidence, some of which we you were able to use as evidence. Oh, most of everything else, but the marmalade incident, we were not. 
What do you know of a so 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 Rod, Roger took his own life, didn't he? He did. So what what happened after? Okay, that's a so maybe the conv- sure. What happened at the end of that trial? Well, Roger gets convicted uh, after a thirteen week trial in Brainerd of the two counts of murder in the first degree, and in nineteen seventy eight when he was tried, the mandatory minimum sentence for murder in the first degree is seventeen years. Now it's thirty years if you're convicted of murder for first degree. And if he's, he has two murder convictions, and if he gets consecutive murder uh, um, sentences, consecutive versus concurrent running at the same time, that would mean he has 34 years minimum he has to serve. Which means, of course, if and he goes off to prison, that if he had served his full term and been come eligible for parole not that he would have been paroled but come eligible he would have had to serve until july 6th of 2011 and, and convicted in 1978 but of course that isn't how it happened how it ends there's a piece of evidence that we had in, including which included the envelope which contained the gold coin we talked about which we believed through uh, an expert testimony was had the thumbprint of Roger Caldwell on it. Well, that at Marjorie's trial was proven to be not Roger's thumbprint. Not that it really mattered. It wasn't a print that could have only been placed there by the murderer, like in blood of, of Velma or Elizabeth, for instance. Uh, but it was um, it was nonetheless a thumbprint that we we had to. Con- I had to concede that Marjorie's trial was not Roger's. Uh, that wasn't part of the circumstantial evidence which we had used in Roger's trial to convict him. Um, we conceded it, and Marjorie said it was not his print. That's a long. That's a very short story of a long p- process. But nonetheless, that's how it came out. And Roger, in in August of 1982, now he's been con- he the Minnesota Supreme Court reviews his convict and reverses his conviction. His convictions. Oh. He's let free. In August of 1982, for pending a new trial, pending instead of going to trial again with him with the consent, and the knowledge and consent, and actually the request of the Congdon uh, family and the Pietla family, we plea bargain with him, and he pleads guilty again to two counts of second-degree murder for time served. So he served a total of 62 m- months for the brutal murder of two wonderful women. And he goes back to Latrobe, Pennsylvania, uh, where he was from. And he, in 1988, he did commit suicide there. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he's no longer living. Uh, well, I, I do want to go back to, sure. eventually, this time, or I know we're going to a break, but the you said the DNA or the, the blood evidence or the DNA evidence has cha- like changed right. from... In, yeah. When you first received it to the the science, sure. Later, sure. We can talk about maybe after the break. Should we do yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. I think that we're we're pretty close to the break. We, we've been uh, talking to John DeSanto. If you've been listening in, you're probably like me on the edge of your seat because I mean, John, <laughs> your your the story is so incredible, and uh, and the fact that you have lived it, and this is you're a, a huge part of the story, and the co-author of the book, Will to Murder. We'll talk a little bit more about that after the break as well. But so with John DeSanto here in uh, Real Presence Live, and we'll get back to him again after this short break. This is Real Presence Live, where the focus is not on the evil around us, but on conversion and mercy through the good news that is always good. We're local, engaging, 
and live on the Real Presence Radio Network. Do you know that your prayers today can still aid in the salvation of someone who died years ago? I'm Father Chris Alar. God is outside of time, and since he is all-knowing and all-powerful, he knows every prayer you will ever make and has the power to apply those graces to any point in time, past, present, or future. So if you have lost anyone, especially to suicide, and think that they are eternally lost, you can still help them. God can take your prayers from today and give someone grace at the time of their judgment because he forever knew that you would make that prayer and he wants you to help them accept his offer of salvation. So there is still hope. Please visit suicideandhope.com so I can personally pray for anyone you've lost and to get our book, After Suicide, There's Hope for Them and You, which helps with any kind of suffering or loss, not just suicide. I promise it will help. This is Father Anthony Craig from the Diocese of Duluth. I really want to thank my parents today for giving me the faith of Jesus Christ and teaching me the ways of prayer, praying over us uh, when we were sick, showing us uh, self-sacrifice. My father actually was a deacon, a permanent deacon in the church, and he would bring us along as kids, because there were six of us kids, and he would bring us along to hospital visits or to work in the food shelf and doing all these various things for people in the community. And I learned ways of serving others through that, through watching my dad. And then my mom, she also was very self-sacrificial of herself. She wore the same pair of tennis shoes for about 10 years to show us that she didn't care about herself as much as the rest of us. And we got new shoes for every school year. We had all of what we needed and most of what we wanted. And the the Lord really provided a, a great example in my parents to show me the way to really Christian servitude and prepared me for the priesthood. This is Real Presence Live on the RPR Network, bringing you stories of faith and hope through local hosts and guests from across the Upper Midwest. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to Real Presence Live. We are... At our final segment of the show, it's amazing how fast this thing goes by. So we're, uh, my name is Father Richard Kuntz, and I'm here with Cindy Jennings, and we're talking to John DeSanto, the prosecuting attorney for the, for the folklore of, not folklore is not the right word for it, but the, the incredible story of the Congdon Mansion murder, which is a huge deal up here in Duluth, Minnesota, and is still a, a big uh, tourist attraction. So at the beginning of this, which didn't seem very long ago, this is like flown <laughs> by, yeah. but at the beginning of this, we talked about DNA testing, blood. And where did it go as far as the science? Because you said it changed. It, it did. Well, by about the uh, mid-90s, maybe early 90s, um, I as a prosecutor, basically crime labs throughout the country were learning uh, the, uh, the protocol for becoming much more in-depth in determining whether a person's blood was his his or her actual blood and we in 1977 of course when these happened we all had dna we had dna we've had dna our whole lives each of us human beings but they didn't have the technology to to analyze blood samples or hair samples which or any um biological um uh, evidence from a body to determine what its dna what what dna it contained well by 19 the early 1990s, the DNA process, which we became so, has become so well known now in, mm-hmm. in criminalistics in the criminal courtroom, um, was developed 
And so our, we, we were writing our book where we ultimately find a local publisher. Well, I want to plug, actually, just real quickly, um, Tony Durkins. He's really, he's Excommunications and Xena uh, City Press, local here in Duluth. He, he published our book in 2003. He liked the story. He said, this is a, this is a, a page turner. So he wanted to publish it, and he did. But we're, we're writing our book. Where we find Tony, and he says, you know, we've got DNA available to us now. Do you have any of the evidence still from back in the 1970s and 80s that we could send to a lab for DNA analysis? Well, quite frankly, all of the, bio, the, the, the biohazardous stuff, uh, I call it stuff. Like the blood. The blood mm-hmm. and the bloody clothing and bloody this or bloody that had been destroyed after all these years. Because, um, so, but we did have still, quite frankly, in a box of evidence that the police department gave me after all this is over and said, would you, we're going to just destroy all this stuff. Do you want it? And I said, well, who knows? Maybe someday I'll write a book. Never really thinking too strongly about it. And, we had in that box, I had in my basement, uh, much of my, my, my wife's chagrin. Do you have that down the basement? Uh, much to my wife's chagrin, um, the envelope oh. that was used that the, uh, the, send the, 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 the send the coin, the actual envelope. And we had saliva samples. That wasn't biohazardous. Um, at least I didn't believe it was. Um, saliva samples of Roger Caldwell still in this box of evidence that was going to be destroyed. So we send, with Tony Durkins, our new publisher, um, at his request, he sends it at his expense to a laboratory uh, in Missouri and, and said, will, will you analyze the what you find, the DNA on the uh, the swabs for his saliva and compare it against anything on that envelope. Well, lo and behold, just ahead of publishing our book, or, or actually it, it hitting the bookstores in, in August of nineteen of two thousand three, excuse me, they come back with a report, and this made the, the news big time, uh, locally and otherwise. Uh, in fact, they the tit- the much of the headlines was the Congdon case all but sealed because they opined that the lick seal of that envelope which they analyzed and the and the licking and the stamp that was on the envelope they found dna sufficient at least for analysis not what you'd use, actually use in court but sufficient to compare with dna of rogers known saliva from those samples and they said it compared it, it matched so we had Roger Caldwell's DNA on the envelope, which resulted in his overturned convictions because it had a misidentified fingerprint actually with his DNA on it. Of course, that would have changed everything if we'd had it back then. He would have never gotten, gotten his convictions overturned. And that was from the coin that he took out of the murder scene and right. sent back to his wife. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So we had his DNA, and it's all, all that DNA evidence and, the, and what is in the last part of that chapter of the book called Loose Ends. 
and uh, they, they were no longer so loose. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We we really had them uh, locked in DNA wise by yeah. two thousand. It's nice because it's like you don't want to put somebody innocent away, and you know this guy is guilty yeah. as yeah. all get out. But yeah. that seals it just to. I don't know, make yourself feel like, yeah, we, we, we had it so. right the whole time. As I say, when I present, we, there was some vindication in that. Yeah, there really was. It's amazing. It's a, You know, I mean, you've, you've said you've given uh, this presentation 60 <laughs> plus times yeah. to all sorts of different groups and all sorts of different lengths. And obviously, it's such a fascinating, until until the movie is out, people have the book. You know? <laughs> right. And if they don't have the book, they, they've been gotten a flavor of you just on this this brief uh, interview that we've had. Thank Tell you. us just a little bit, John, how do people get this book? And I'm going to repeat what I said because I mean it. I'm a, I'm a readaholic. I read yeah. all the time. I've read thousands of books in my life. I really have. And I've, I've thought about this leading up to this uh, interview. This is in my top 25 books I've ever read. Cool. It, it, it is such a great read. Thanks so much, Father. Actually, if we ever do a, a we have four editions of this book. This We're now in the fourth edition. And why do we have editions one, first edition, second, third, and fourth. That's because Marjorie, after her acquittal, she was acquitted of her participation in these murders. She committed other crimes, and as she committed more crimes, we added more information to our story through Gail Feitinger. Um, and so that we had edition, second edition in 2003, third edition 2005 and then fourth edition which we still have but there'll probably be a fifth edition if and when when i mean there, there it'll happen because we're all going to die yeah. right with it when marjorie passes on probably but uh um, this book will to murder is available in basically barnes and noble and all your bookstores um people can if they wish uh you can look it up. Um, they can write to me. I can sell books direct to, uh, as I purchase them th- um, through and from my publisher. But uh, but it's it's really in all of the bookstores. Well, bar- okay, so but you don't have a website. You don't have a website or anything. No, I do oh, not. So I, they can get uh, it locally. Well, um, Tony Durkins, actually our publisher, does have a website, um, Zenith City Press. Okay. Um, and you can find it through there too. Yeah, the book okay. is absolutely fascinating. It is a true page turner. I certainly recommend. It. And, and John, you've been so good. I mean, it's. I'm so happy that you uh, that you came to the show. And, and next month we are going to have Dan Hartman, who is now managing the Glen Sheen, and people can go to Glen Sheen and and, and it, take the tour. Yeah, and I, I think was mentioned <clears throat> or um, right up front. Um, I don't know that they're so. Um, Secluded from um, at least saying something. They about say something it now, about it now, but they didn't way back when. Right. We out of quite honestly, out of respect, respect. for the Congress. Of course, yeah. yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much, John. I, I very much have enjoyed your uh, interview. You. This has been thank great. You. It's so, been a pleasure. Yeah, it, it has fun. been. So, uh, so right now, I'm going to uh, have Therese or Teresa come back on the air. And, uh, hey, give us a little bit of a preview yeah. of what's up next. Um, so on the next Real Presence Live, that's Wednesday from 9 to 11 a.m. Central, host Paul Rutten and Father Paul Rutten and Heather Carroll will visit with Missy Bombiger about helping adults engage in their Catholic faith. Then, what will the school year look like for St. Mary's Elementary in Sioux Falls? Michelle Shields will, be, will tell us what to expect. And tune in to hear a mother's perspective on the coming school year as we visit with Michelle Majors. All that and much more will be coming up on the next Real Presence Live, Wednesday from 9 to 11 a.m. Central. 
Thank you very much, Therese. You know, I mean, you're, you, you do a pretty good job. I think Eli better watch out for his job. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> and like I said, you can tell him I said that. Okay, I will. They always sound like good shows coming up. I always want to make sure I tune into them. But uh, this has been a fascinating show. I mean, from Dr. Alex Habig in regards to the science and the proof or the existence of God and how the two mesh to to now uh, John DeSanto and the fascinating story of will to murder. I'm going to adopt him in my family, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Great. It's just a great story. uh, I I am hoping that listeners will um, uh, check out that book, Will to Murder. And uh, I'm sure there's probably not too many other books called Will to Murder, even if you just Google that. Or like uh, John had said, you can just go to your Barnes & Noble and find it. And and, um, I have... As, from the moment I read it, from, from, from the moment I read it years ago, um, uh, I've been saying the same thing. I've been saying the same thing. I've been saying, this is like one of my favorite books I've ever read in my life. And it's not normally the type of book that I read. And so um, so maybe that factored into it, but it was such a fascinating read. It's such a fascinating story that, that uh, I just, um, every time I think of John, I was, it's, it's always very good feelings and uh, because the book is fascinating. So I certainly encourage listeners uh, to, to check it out, Wildemar. No, you're going to check it out, Cindy. Oh, I can't wait. Yeah. And I have several people I know that would love to read it. So Yeah, yeah, and, and it's out there. I mean, and you've heard of the Congdon murders uh, you know, as long as you've been in Duluth. I mean, it's yes. such a big it's such a big uh, part. Uh, 16 years? She's been 16 years. years yeah. so, and it's, a big, it's a big tourist site, too, of course. I guess I'm Duluthian now. Yeah, so so it's um uh, so anyhow this is this has been a this has been a, a fascinating show. It's, I have to say this is one of my favorite shows. I've been doing this for a few years, and so I think between Alec and uh, and John, it's been just a great show. So let's why don't we go ahead and end with a prayer? So in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the gift of this time on Real Presence Live. We ask you to send blessings upon our uh, guests and and our listeners. And may Almighty God bless you all in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Until next time, Real Presence Live. God bless everybody. This has been Real Presence Live on the Real Presence Radio Network. Real Presence Live brings you inspirational stories of faith and a look at the good and holy things happening in our local area. Weekday mornings from 9 to 11 Central. Tune in for an encore of each show beginning Saturday morning at 6. Get the podcast any time of day or night at yourcatholicradiostation.com or on the Real Presence radio app. And remember, you can be a part of the conversation through Facebook and Twitter. Real Presence Live, local, engaging, and live on the Real Presence radio network.